Life is really just a consecutive series of minutes and moments. I mean, really, that's all it is. It's minutes and moments of every day that pass, and most of them aren't that significant or important. They pass, we get up, we have our breakfast, we go to work or whatever we do, we have our dinner, we watch TV, we go to bed, and it's like wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. And, and life sometimes can feel pretty mundane. But the reality is that not all days are created equal. There are certain days, there are certain moments where something significant happens. There are those moments, those minutes in the mundane monotony of the routine of life where something happens, something shifts, something changes, and life is never the same again. And there's some of them you can plan for. Some of them you know that they're going to happen. So the birth of your first child, you know nine months in advance that that's going to happen. But the day that child is born, you know that life is never going to be the same again. Your your wedding day, you you plan it and you you, you prepare for it. And, uh, some prepare more than others. And, uh, I, I, but you know from that day forward, life is never going to be the same again. Maybe your first day at a new school or university, maybe the day you retire. Um, so, so some of those moments that are significant you can plan for, but then there's others that are total surprises. Those are the ones that you say, I never saw it coming. I didn't expect that. That wasn't in my plan today. Maybe finding out you're pregnant at a stage when you didn't think you would be pregnant. Maybe meeting the one that you're going to marry for the first time, the first time you set eyes on your loved one, maybe a diagnosis or an accident or a sudden death, maybe a promotion that's unexpected, an opportunity not planned. There's those days which started out like they were going to be ordinary, like every other day, but as you look back later in life, you realize that those were pivotal, those were those were those transition moments of your life, those were those times when Things shifted and things changed and nothing would ever be the same again. It's almost like there's a dividing line that there was life before and life after. And, 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 and we all have those dates. You know, if I were to say Friday the 22nd of August 2008, none of you will probably know what you were doing on Friday the 22nd of August 2008. But this girl was spending five hours getting ready for the first date. <laughs> With what? With me, by the way, not with somebody else. Um, Friday the 22nd of August 2008, we had our first date. And then Crawford's Burn in. But, but uh, yeah, little did I know as I picked this uh, pretty blonde-haired girl who I had been uh, b-boying for two months. That was for all of you under 30. We've had like Facebook, it's not a rude word. Um, I, we had b-boed for two months and we were having our first date. And little did I know as I drove up to her and we up to Downhouse in Craig Street in Belfast that four months later we would be engaged and nine months after that we would be married. If I'd only known. And, uh, I would do it all again. September 2009, not a significant day. It was the day we were married in Chantal Parish in Lurgan. 16th of September 2012, our little boy Elijah was born in Crumlin Hospital in Dublin, was it? Crumlin Hospital? I don't know. It was a rough hospital. <laughs> Literally, like it was rough. Um, but to everyone else, those are just ordinary days. 
but for us those were life-changing moments and you'll all have your own you'll have your own dates those significant moments those times where you look back and you say those moments whether they were planned or unplanned they changed my life forever we're going to look at one of those this morning in the life of somebody called Simon but you know better as Peter Peter the disciple Peter the one who we read so much about this pivotal this this defining moment in his life let's look at Luke chapter 5 a familiar passage to to many of us look at those first two words one day just another day doesn't give us a date there was nothing particularly special about the day it was just one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret lake of Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Galilee also known as the Sea of Tiberias when you read all those things in the Bible sometimes you get confused they're all in the same place it's not uh, 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 sometimes they call it the Sea of Galilee it's not a sea it's a, it's a lake it's the lowest land freshwater lake in Israel uh, I, I had the pleasure of being there a few years ago. Actually, let's stick up this slide. Yeah, that's there. It's, it's stunning. Uh, I was taken from a boat um, on the lake, and that's the shore. That's actually the shore that they said that Jesus had the barbecue with Peter, and he said to him, do you love me? So that's, that's exactly the sort of place where Jesus was, right on the edge of Lake Galilee, and he is speaking to the crowds. The people are crowding around him and they're listening to the word of God. People are crowding around him. Jesus is getting more popular. <coughs> he is getting more attention. Not only because of his speaking, but because of his healing. Because he's setting people free from demons. Because he is opening blind eyes and opening deaf ears. and So crowds are coming, but they're coming mostly because they want to hear the word of God. They didn't need advertising. They didn't need Facebook or Instagram to promote it. What attracted them? Yes, it was the miracles and healings. Maybe it was curiosity, but look at what it says. They were there listening to the word of God because the word of God preached in the power of the Spirit will always draw a crowd. The church thinks if we entertain people, if we amuse people, if we can just do enough bells and whistles and enough gimmicks and enough novelties, we can attract people. No, the word of God preached in the power of the Spirit attracts people. It's not about putting on the best show in town. I often say this, that if we win the world with entertainment, we've got to keep them with entertainment and the world will always entertain better than the church. But if we win them with the word of God, there is no substitute for the word of God. There is no substitute for the presence of God. And people will keep coming back. This shouldn't work. I was taught in theological college, you preach eight minutes. Obviously, I didn't listen. But honestly, this should not work. I bumped into my old RE teacher recently. He said, I hear you preach 40 minutes. I said, I do. And I said, we're growing every week. And he could not get his head around it. Why? Because in our culture, we don't understand that in the, when the word of God is preached in the power of the spirit and God is there, it is magnetic, it is irresistible, and you will do whatever you can to be there. 
That is the reality. And there's churches thinking if we water it down, if we dilute it, if we cut, if we cut the bits out of the Bible we don't like, then the culture will love us and the churches will be filled. And those are the churches that are becoming carpet warehouses and Indian restaurants and mosques because they are not faithfully preaching the word of God. God blesses his word, but there's a difference here because I'm preaching the word of God as we see it. But it says here that they were listening to the word of God. They weren't listening just to the words on a page. They were listening to the word of God because Jesus was preaching himself and he is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So when Jesus spoke, God spoke. Every word that proceeded from the mouth of Jesus was the word of God because he was God come in the flesh. You can imagine listening to his words. His words, it says in John 5, are spirit and life. Imagine just being able to, just as he spoke, the resonance and, the, and just the power of his voice and just what that must have made you feel inside. The word, the living word, Jesus was speaking and his words were the word of God. Oh, I'd love to have been there. Where God's word has authority and God's spirit is welcome, God will bless. They will bl- he will bless. Let's keep moving. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So the crowds had grown so much that Jesus is constantly being pushed back to the water's edge to the point where his ankles are maybe in the water. And he's realizing that if I want to communicate the word of God, if I want to reach these people with the truth of God, I have got to change my position and so he gets into Simon's boat I don't know if he asked him it doesn't say if he asked him he probably did or whether he just it would be like I remember one day in Dublin I pulled up outside our house literally I'd just been to Tesco I pulled up outside our house and this guy jumped into the passenger seat and his words were oh beep and he went sorry I was waiting on somebody in a black one series and when you pulled up I thought it was you and, and, and then he jumped out again I don't know if it was that sort of where Jesus got into his boat and Peter came up and he was like who are you but, 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 but Jesus gets into Peter's boat they go out just a little from shore because that would have created a natural amphitheater a natural microphone sort of setup where Jesus could have communicated with the crowd and they came to hear Jesus Here's the thing. The crowd were there to hear Jesus. Simon Peter wasn't. He was just there doing his job. Simon Peter wasn't even there among the crowd to hear the word of God. He had just come back from fishing all night. He's cleaning his nets. He just happens to be there. And Jesus ambushes him. Do you ever have those moments when Jesus ambushes you? You weren't expecting, you didn't go to church, you, didn't expe- you weren't watching you know, a sermon on YouTube, you weren't worshipping. But in those moments where God just speaks into your life, you hadn't planned it, you hadn't anticipated it, you were just going about your daily business and God speaks. This is one of those moments for Peter. Peter is just going about his job. He's cleaning his nets, there's a crowd here and suddenly Jesus is in his boat. 
And it was the start of one of those moments when life would never be the same again. And you remember some of you of my age or older will remember the movie Sliding Doors. Remember? Yeah? Some of you will remember Gwyneth Paltrow and I don't know what came to me this morning just as I was thinking through this. The the whole premise of the movie Sliding Doors is what can happen if one small moment in your life changes where Gwyneth Paltrow's rushing for a train and it's what if she catches the train or what if she misses the train? Remember? And, 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 And her life, her love life and her career are totally different all because of that one moment, that sliding door moment, whether she catches or misses the train. This is a bit like that, only this wasn't luck, this wasn't fate, this wasn't circumstance or happenstance, this was divine providence. Jesus knew exactly where Peter would be. This wasn't a just happened. This was God's plan that Jesus and Peter would be on the same beach at the same time because it was something Jesus needed to do with Peter and use Peter for that would transform not only his life but the lives of thousands to come. What if Peter had said no? Do you ever think about that? What if Peter had said, Jesus, I'm tired. I've been out all night. It's all right for you. You're just out of bed. I've been fishing all night. We've just cleaned our nets. I'm tired. I kind of want to go home to sleep. The whole of history would be different. Sometimes we don't realize the significance of a small yes. It wasn't a big deal. Can I use your boat yet? There was two boats, it says. He could have used the other boat. But because Peter chose a small yes in an insignificant moment, his life changed forever. You will never sometimes understand the power of a small yes to Jesus. A small yes, what seems like an insignificant yes, can have incredible ramifications for your life and for the lives of the generations to come. It was just a small yes. The power of a moment when you say yes to Jesus reverberates throughout history. And the thing was this, that that Peter wasn't a, a preacher. He was a fisherman. And yet, he was able to use his boat as a platform for preaching. I find it funny. Sometimes people forget that people like myself are human, first of all. Um, I think people sometimes think that I came out of the womb with a collar and a Bible, you know, like a a clerical, like like, like this is all, you know, and and particularly not you lot, but people who who are more traditional or who, who, maybe even non-Christians particularly, they just, as soon as they hear you're a minister or a vicar, they they just assume that that's kind of your whole identity, that that that's all you've ever done, that, that, that you have no other aspects or dimensions to your life. And, and I was thinking just about just some of the jobs that I've done over the years. Um, I, I, my first job was in Woolworths in Portadown. We used to steal the pick and mix. We did. There was a bunch of us, all our mates, we all worked there. Then, then I went to Wellworths across the road. Didn't last very long. Then I went to Dunn's supermarket for three years. And then I went to British Home Stores in Belfast and the Levi store. And the one thing I realized about all five of those places, they're all closed now. Um, <laughs> Just saying, it just was like this, this moment of revelation that 
you want your shop to close, employ Cooney. No, um, but then I went to Coca-Cola, and it's still open and doing really well. I went to Coca, I, I, I was on the merchandising team for a while, and I was on the promotional team going around bars and clubs and nightclubs giving out free Coca-Cola, not Coke. And uh, those of you from who are laughing need to repent. Um, I went, spent two, or no, I spent five years in PR sales and marketing, two years working in the States. I was a postman for a summer. Some of you won't know that. When I was at Theological College, I got a summer job in Belfast as a postman. Uh, there's nothing that'll cheer your heart in the morning like going around Togmona Estate delivering post to 532 houses, especially ones with Rottweilers. Uh, literally, I used to sh- say to them, either that dog goes somewhere or I'm never delivering your post again. I was a postman then the following summer. I worked in the sorting office in the Royal Mail. I've done a lot of jobs. I've always worked from I was 15, 16. I, I, I've always loved working. And, and then I went from sales and marketing as an account manager with Unilever into training for ministry. Um, but here's, here's my point that, that in every place, just because I didn't have a pulpit, some more than others, God used it as a platform. that I don't need a platform like this to communicate Jesus. And you don't need a microphone and a platform to communicate Jesus. Peter, it was just a boat, but a boat became a pulpit and a platform. Maybe you think I'm just a teacher. I'm just an electrician. I'm just a mom. I'm a hu- just a housewife. I'm just a grandparent. I'm just a factory worker. I'm just a, a manager. I'm just a secretary. Whatever you think. I'm just a solicitor. I'm just an accountant. I'm not a preacher. I, I, you know what? Thank God you're not a preacher. Because you have a platform that I don't have. If Peter hadn't been a fisherman, Jesus wouldn't have had a platform. You see what I'm saying? That you will reach people from your platform that I can never reach from this platform. But it doesn't matter what the platform looks like. It's as long as you recognize that it's a platform. For those of you who are grandparents, you have a platform to influence young lives. For those of you who teach and hope kids, you're using your platform. Which is just as important, if not more important than anything I do up here. So in whatever place you find yourself this week, don't think of it as just a job or just a role. Remember, it's a platform. Because when you invite Jesus on board your life, he can use whatever platform you give him. My background was in PR and marketing. And and that was my platform. And recently I decided I wanted to, because when I was at university, literally the internet was just coming. Like, and that's how ancient. Like, I got my first email address in my final year at university. And I I remember discovering the internet and the world, you know, and the dial-up where you had to sit and wait for five minutes for every page. But but recently I decided I want to learn, go back and just learn a wee bit more about online marketing and digital marketing. Just, I don't know, I just enjoy just having wee things and learning more. And I decided I'd start with Instagram. And I, I, I just talked to a few people and I read a few books and watched a few YouTube things and started just playing with Instagram and 
and I started this little thing called Daily Prophetic, which was just literally, it's just a little daily devotional every morning with a little prophetic thought, daily.prophetic on Instagram. And literally, I get up, or I don't even get up some mornings, I do it from my bed, and I, I just speak into my phone what I feel God's saying for the day. I find a Bible passage that links to it. I post it. Later in the day, I post a quote or something inspirational. That's it. Ten minutes a day. I started that eight weeks ago. At the minute, I have 7,400 people following me. It's nuts. I, that wasn't planned. Bill Johnson of Bethel follows me. I don't even follow him. Sorry, Bill, I'm sure you're listening to all of my sermons. Seriously, actresses, models, celebrities, magazine editors are following. But seriously, it is, it's ridiculous, the favor that God has put on this. But every morning and every day, I get probably 30 messages from people saying, thank you for encouraging me. Something that started out as a 10-minute-a-day hobby for me, something that, that I thought I had left behind... God has repurposed and is reaching more people than I'm reaching in here through 10 minutes a day on Instagram. And I just, God took what was a hobby and made it a platform. I've also helped one or two people here with a little bit of marketing. I'm helping a guy who's an author who I'd read some of his stuff. He, he lives a completely debaucherous lifestyle. And yet him and I have connected in a way that I would never connect. I'm helping a Muslim copywriter in Dubai. It's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the doors that God has opened through me deciding two months ago, I think I'll play around with Instagram a little bit. But that's become a platform. That guy, the author, who has nothing as far as I know ever to do with church. I guarantee he'll be going through my Instagram stories today and he'll see our church. It was just, that's why I video little pieces of worship. Because there's people who will never set foot in here who I want to show what happens in here. And, and, and God takes whatever you have, however small and insignificant it seems, and he can use it as a platform for him to reach people who are far from God. Every day, God positions you in places and with people that you hadn't maybe planned but he's creating a platform so never say I'm just a I'm just a you're not just anything you're a child of God you're called by God you're commissioned by God you're empowered by God And you're a platform that he wants to use to reach people far from God. With his love and grace and truth. Let's keep going or I'm going to be here. What time is it? Lord, give me the gift of speaking faster. Uh, Verses 4 and 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So the crowds are gathering, um, Jesus has spoken, he finishes speaking, and he says, go out into deeper water and let down the nets. What nets? The nets that Peter has just cleaned. How annoying is that? You ever just finished cleaning something and somebody comes and messes it all up again? You've just cleaned the house and somebody comes through with muddy feet and it just, 
you're, you're not happy. Like it's kind of one of those moments. And, and I can imagine the dilemma of Peter, of just trying, you know, like, what do I do in this moment? Like, everything within me wants to just say, Jesus, I'm going home. I, I've had enough. I'm tired. Plus, he's really frustrated because he's worked all night and caught nothing. There is nothing more frustrating than doing what you're meant to be good at doing and it not working out for you. There's nothing more frustrating than giving something your all and getting no results. Particularly for men, and I'm not, this isn't a sexist generalization thing, even though I have been accused of such. It is just a thing that us men get so much of our identity through what we do. Ladies, let me tell you something. If your husband's job is not going well, probably life isn't going well. I want to tell you that. And everything else in your marriage and everything else can be going great. But if, his, if he hates his job, he will not be a happy man. Because us men, whether it's good or bad, and I know we should get all of our identity through Jesus and I preach all that. But the reality is that so much of our identity as men comes from what we do. And Peter is a fisherman, and that's his identity, and he's fished all night, and he's caught nothing. So his self-esteem has gone from there to there. He's frustrated, he's annoyed, he just wants to get home and put the night behind him. He probably just wants to say this, and I don't know if he thought it. When Jesus says, go out into deeper water, he probably wants to say, you know what, Jesus, you're a preacher, and I've heard you're a decent carpenter, but why don't you let me stick to the fishing? Because I've never seen you fish, Jesus. I've seen you make things with wood, and I've seen you heal a few people, so why don't you do your thing and let me look after my thing? Paul Reid, you know Paul Reid, he spoke here, he tells a funny story. I don't know if he tells it publicly, but he's told me it privately, and I feel the need to tell you it now. Um... (laughs) He told me about when they first started CFC in Belfast. And Robin Mark, you know Robin Mark, days of Elijah, Robin Mark, came on and started leading worship. But Robin had this thing where between every song, Robin would start preaching a little sermon. And it, like for the first wee while, it didn't bother Paul. And then after a while, Paul just got up one day and went, Robin, if you're going to preach, I'm going to sing. So shut up. And, uh, and that was the end of it. And, and I kind of feel like this was one of those moments where, 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 where Peter went, you know what? If you're going to fish, give me the healing thing, you know, because, because I'm the fisherman, you're the preacher, why don't you just let me stay in my lane, you stay in yours. But look at what Simon says, Simon says, Simon Peter says, Simon says, scratch your head. So, but, but look at what he says, but because you say so, I will. That is such a key verse. Even though it doesn't make sense because you say so I will even though I've tried everything humanly possible and it's failed because you say so I will even though I've tried it before and it's failed miserably because Jesus because you say so 
I will. And this is really the essence, the heart, the core, the foundation of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is to say to him that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't always meet up with what I want to do. It may not be what I expected, but Jesus, if you call me, if you speak it, if you tell me to do it, because you say so, I will. The essence of discipleship is obedience obedience and relationship to Jesus. Doing what Jesus wants you to do, even if you don't feel like doing it. Obedience to the word of God. Listen to his voice and responding, even if it doesn't make sense, even if there's huge pressure to conform in our culture. It's doing what Jesus says, even if it's not politically correct. It's living according to this word, even if it's not socially acceptable. It's declaring the truth of what God says. Even if there's a huge pressure in our, conform, or in our culture to conform and think and believe and say something else, it will not make you politically correct. It will not make you popular. But I am not living for an audience of many. I am living for an audience of one. And because he says so, then I will. I'm not trying to impress our culture. Because our culture is on a downward trajectory. But I am trying to impress the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's already impressed by us anyway. You know, I know I joke about it, but it's true that I never wanted to go to any of the three churches that God has called us to. I never wanted to go to Lurgan because I was from Portadown. And at Portadown matches, we had sang songs about your Lurgan slums and what you do there. <laughs> and it never sounded that appealing. I never wanted to go to Dublin because I was from Portadown. <laughs> Same reason. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. And, uh, and I never really wanted to come back to Craig Alvin because I was from Portadown. Um, I see a pattern there. Um, to be, if I'm being really honest, I, I never really wanted to be a Church of Ireland minister. I wanted to be, I knew it was called a ministry, but I struggled with a few things like baptizing babies. Um, I did. Honestly, theologically, I probably would have fitted better in, in a Baptist church or some, or an Elam church or something like that. Do you know why we went to Lurgan? Well, I went to Lurgan and Becky followed me because we got married and she had to. And why we went to Dublin where we didn't really want to and where they couldn't provide a house or pay us when they told us they were employing us and why we came to Craig Alvin when they'd said we wouldn't. Because he said so. That's it. That's it. Because when you give your life to Jesus, you don't just make him Savior, you make him Lord. And it's not just about praying a prayer 20 years ago. It's about saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you can say, yes, Lord, or you can say no, but you cannot say no, Lord, because those two words do not go together. And that's the Christian life. And we've got somewhere along the line this thing where the, that, that I'll obey Jesus as long as he wants what I want and as long as it suits me and as long as it's comfortable and convenient for me. That is not Christianity. That is our Western rubbish New Age philosophy. But that is not biblical Christianity which calls us to take up our cross and follow him wherever he leads us. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if you don't want to do it even if you've tried it before and it hasn't worked. 
you know what I've discovered? Life works better when you're obedient to God, even if you're grudgingly obedient. Sometimes I'm just grudgingly and angrily obedient. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it because I know the consequences of not doing it are worse than the consequences of doing it. And Jesus would rather have reluctant obedience than disobedience. And life just works better when you obey. (laughs) Obedience brings its own blessing. And the Christian life begins with one yes and continues with many opportunities to say yes. It continues out. It starts out first time you say yes to Jesus. And it started for Peter with something small. Can I get on your boat? Yes. But that one yes led to many different yeses all throughout his life. And now he's asked another question. And the question is this. Will you go out deeper? Will you go out deeper? Look at what other translations said. Simon, go out deeper. Launch out into the deep. Push out the boat further into the deep water. Go out towards deeper and let down your nets. You see, there were the crowd, and they were at the shallow end of the water. And the crowd had one job, and that's all they did. They listened to the word of God, but they never had to do anything. And there's always a crowd who are happy to listen, but they don't want to do anything. But Jesus doesn't speak to the crowd. He speaks to the committed, and he says, you're the ones I want to go deeper. You're the ones I want to go further. And so many today are content with shallow Christianity. So many today are content with shallow end faith, which demands little and surrenders little. So many people who call themselves Christians show up on a Sunday, go home, sing just as I am and live just as they were. They prayed a prayer 30 years ago because it was fire insurance, but they do as little as possible. They give as little as possible. And Jesus is a life enhancement on the part of their life. He's their saviour but not their Lord. And our entire culture swims in the shallow end. We live in a very shallow culture. Shallow superficial entertainment. Shallow marriages. Shallow relationships. Shallow books. Shallow conversations. Shallow politics. Shallow sermons. And God continually calls his people, go deeper. Go further. Go deeper. Go further, go deeper, go further. Because what I've discovered is the real adventure is never in the shallow end. It's always in the deep end. The real good stuff that God has for us is never found paddling about in picky pool. It's when we go deeper into the, the depths. That's where the stuff is. Push the boat out. Otherwise you will settle and stagnate in a life so much less than Jesus intended for you. But our culture continually says, just stay shallow. And God says, go deeper. Go deeper into my word. Go deeper into relationship with me. Go deeper. I have so much more for you. You know, I've been going, I know you can, I'm not sure if anyone can tell, but I've been going to the gym on and off for 20 years now and sometimes more than others. And a number of years ago, I actually, I, I took it very seriously. And, and I was a lot it's hard to imagine I was a lot bigger than I am now. Um, it's just some people call me Arnold, um, but uh, but I was I was bigger. And I remember my over twenty years of going to the gym every now and again. My mum would say this, and she's not here this morning, so I can talk about her. Um, she would say, "Craig, what happens when you stop training? All that muscle is going to turn to flab." 
which apart from being scientifically wrong, I don't want to geek out on you because muscle and flab are different things. But, but, but she would say that over tw- every, every sort of few years, she would say, what happens when you stop training? All that muscle is going to turn to flab. And she said it about three or four years ago when, I, when I'd been working out quite hard. And, and here was my answer. I said, I'm just, a, I'm just not going to stop lifting. Because for 20 years, mom, you've been saying for 20 years I've been lifting. And I'm just not going to stop lifting. And so I'm 42, nearly 43 in a few weeks. Happy birthday to me. And, and, and I'm going to keep lifting. I'm lifting more now than I was five years ago. And when I'm 60, I'm going to keep lifting. And when I'm 80, I'm going to keep lifting. If I can lift myself off the sofa. And when I'm 110, I'm going to keep lifting. Do you know why? Because the only way muscle atrophies and breaks down is if you stop lifting, if you stop putting pressure on it, if you stop putting resistance against it. Muscle breaks down when there's nothing coming against it if you don't use it. And faith is like that. Your faith only grows when there's resistance, when you use it, when daily, week in, week out, you take your faith and you use it and you apply it, then it grows. Otherwise it shrinks and shrivels and atrophies and breaks down. Why not exercise? Oh, yes, I got a clap. Oh, I was trying to get the Baptist to say amen last week. was like trying to pull teeth, honestly. But I got one. But honestly, use it or lose it. Keep growing. Keep taking risks. Face more resistance. Stretch those muscles. Get out of shallow water. And get in over your head, because look at what happens. Verse 6 and 7, and we're nearly done. He says, giving people faith. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. (laughs) Before this, their biggest problem was no fish. Now their biggest problem is too many fish. Before this, their biggest problem was empty boats. Now it's sinking boats. That's what I call a high-quality problem. There's problems, then there's high-quality problems. And that's the story of this church, really, isn't it? We've got high-quality problems right now. I know we're in the summer at the moment, and numbers are down a bit. But in June, we, have, we had a high-quality problem. Because we seat 190 people, and for two weeks, we had 220 people in here. That's a high-quality problem. It's a problem, but it's better than some other problems. It's better than the problems that 80% of my peers in the Church of Ireland have, it's, which is they preach to six people in one church on a Sunday and four in another and four in another, and they're trying to figure out how to keep the lights on and pay the bills. I'd rather have the problem we have, but it is a problem, but it's a better problem. So what do they do? They get another boat. What are we going to do? We're going to create space. Originally, my plan was to go to a second service, and I haven't talked to anybody about this, so worship team, leaders. <laughs> we were going to go to a second service in September. I've really felt the Lord this week speak to me that we're to hold off to January. Okay? Yeah? Yeah, leadership team? Okay. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Okay, good. I see. I see unanimous. And, and Because I want us to get to the stage in October where we go, we don't have a choice anymore. If I do it now, I, I, this isn't my desire. Guys, I, I want to tell you, I'm not here to build an empire. And, uh, like This isn't about me preaching to a big crowd. Two Easter's ago, I was preaching to 2,000 people. I left that to come and preach to 200 people this Easter, so I don't give a rip about a crowd, okay? That is not why I'm in this. <laughs> this is not about the money or the glory or the fancy cars 
Okay? This is about obedience to the Word of God. And we are going to create space because we're a church that's called to reach a community and there are thousands of people live within two miles of us who have never heard of the love of Jesus. So we're going to create bigger nets and bigger boats. And I don't know how we're going to do it. And it is going to cause tension and it's going to cause friction and it's going to be difficult, but that's the only thing we can do until God gives us a bigger building. But we need bigger boats and we need bigger nets. And if you look at it, notice, this is a bit that just kept coming to me this week. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Their boats were so full that they began to sink. The blessing and the burden went together. The blessing and the breaking went together. Sometimes your place of greatest burden and greatest breaking is the place where you find the greatest blessing and the greatest breakthrough. Like right now, it's a burden. To try to figure out how we're going to go to two services and how we're going to... I've been trying to find a new building. We're doing all... That's a burden, but it's also a blessing. And sometimes in the most broken places of your life where it feels like like the nets are falling apart, where it feels like everything is falling apart, where it feels like you're sinking, in those broken places where you feel like you're sinking, that's where God does his greatest blessing. And that's where you see your greatest breakthrough. You know, I was talking to David Parks as I drove to church this morning on my phone. And David said this to me. He said, I am so thankful God brought me here to Liverpool. And he has put me in this hospital bed. And I have been able to speak to people about Jesus that I have never been able to speak about before. In the place of his greatest breaking and burden, he is seeing blessing. And he is getting better, by the way. Please keep praying for him over the next few days. The blessing and the breaking, we see that link, don't we? You know, three times in the Gospels we read, Jesus took bread. What did he do? He blessed it and he broke it. Sometimes the blessing and the breaking go together. But here's the problem. We get so focused on the breaking and the burden that we miss the blessing. We're so overwhelmed by the burden and the breaking that we don't recognize the net full of fish. That's right in front of us. You know, I was telling the folks in Port Stewart last week about a year in Dublin that was the hardest year of my entire life, the third year that we had there, and I've talked about this here. The hardest year of my entire life, the second hardest year was my third year in Dublin. And, uh, but it was also the most fruitful year where we saw around 100 people on Sunday mornings come to faith. And when you have 100 people in your church and 100 new people come to faith and stay, that's a blessing but it was also the hardest year. In the breaking, we saw the breakthrough. And if you're going through a tough time right now, and I really sense, even as we were praying this morning in the prayer meeting, this has been a tough week for some of you. This has been a tough week. The enemy's on the attack. You know why the enemy attacks? Why would he assign his troops to you and not somebody else? Because he knows that there's something good on the other side. He knows that you're coming through into the promised land. He knows that there is something ahead and he will assign the hordes of hell to stop you getting there. Otherwise, he would send them somewhere else. My friend Alan Scott has this theory. He says, to most birds, a scarecrow is a frightening thing. But to a smart bird, a scarecrow is an advertisement. Because if a smart bird sees a scarecrow, it knows that's where the fruit is. 
And sometimes we see things and they scare us. And rather than seeing the enemy's attacks as something to scare us, why don't we see them as an advertisement that the blessing and favor of God is upon us? So rather than being afraid, why don't we push further? Because there is territory to be taken, but there are enemies to be deposed before we take that territory. All of the best stuff is in the deepest place, folks, not in the shallow end. All of the best stuff, the catch was in the deepest place. The best marriages are the deepest marriages. The best relationships are the deepest marriages. The best churches are the deepest churches. The best relationships are the deepest relationships. Go deeper. It might not get easier, but that's where the good stuff is. And this passage also reminds us that our God is a God of abundance. That the only limitation was not on the fish, it was on the nets and the boats. Bigger nets, bigger boats, more fish. The limitation is never on God's capacity to give. It is on our capacity to receive. And as we create capacity, he will fill it. If you build it, they will come. Our God is a God of abundance. He is without limitation. In Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. 2 Kings 4, the oil only stopped flowing when the widow ran out of jars. The limitation is never on his end. It's on ours. Let's keep, we're really there. It's all about Jesus. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. This is the first time in the gospel that Simon is called Peter. He's called Simon Peter now. Before this, he was Simon. Now he's Simon Peter, then he becomes Peter. There's a transition taking place. There's a change taking place in Simon's life. Something is shifting. Do you know what it is? There's a conversion taking place because look at what he says before when jesus had first approached him he called him master which was just a term of respect for anybody in authority look at what he calls him now lord there's a difference between admiring jesus and calling him lord and what does he do when he recognizes who jesus is he doesn't go well look at my great boat he falls at his knees in worship because he recognizes how holy how powerful how all-knowing how righteous this jesus is and in light of that he sees himself as he is and he says i am a sinful man i bought something (laughs) this week because amazon had a prime day sale and i kind of always wanted I bought a 10X mirror. I don't know why. I just, I, this stuff, uh, you didn't even know. Look at my wife's face. is like, what do you do? I don't know. I just, I know. I bought it for Elijah. Um, I just wanted to see himself big. Um, I don't know why. I just, it's because of getting Grey's hers and my moustache and her easier to cut out. Um, if I'm being really brutally honest with the congregation here. Um, I know, I embarrass myself, I know. But you know what, let's keep it real, guys. People identify with your weaknesses. Um, and I bought this, and then, like, 10x, like, what was I thinking? Like, every wrinkle. <laughs> like, every, I mean, you could carry your groceries home with those bags under my eyes. Every blackhead, every, I mean, I, I discovered blackheads this week that the world has seen and I never knew I had, and spotting. <laughs> And not only that, it's not just 10x, it's got a light. It lights up all my imperfections. Why am I telling you not not just to entertain you so you can make fun of me? But here's the thing. When you see yourself as you really are in the glory of the light of Christ, you realize that you're more imperfect and more flawed than you ever thought you were. That when the glory of Jesus showed up, before he was just master, 
person authority. But when you see him in his glory and his authority and his power, you fall on your knees and you worship and you say, you're not just an ordinary man, you are Lord and I am a sinful man. And as I'm a sinful man, I'm not sure you can do anything with me. And in that moment, Jesus says, you're exactly the sort of person I can do something with. Because it's only those who know that they're sinners who recognize they need a savior and only those who need a savior can I use by the power of my spirit. That's exactly where we need to get to. To the point where we go, Jesus, why would you want to use me? And Jesus says, you're not exactly the sort of person I want to use. It all starts with obedience. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. He says, don't be afraid. He first of all speaks to Peter's fear. And then he calls him into a deeper, new, expansive future. In fact, here's the thing. Like, this really clicked with me this morning. It was Peter's failure that positioned him for his future. If Peter had caught lots of fish, where would he have been? Out in the water. It was only because of his failure that he was positioned for his future. And sometimes God will take our failures and he will use them to position us for the most effective future. He will take the things that we look at as our biggest messes in life and they will become our greatest message of his redeeming grace. Because your future is not determined by your past, but by the cross and by the power of his spirit. And he says, you're going to no longer catch fish, you're going to catch people. Literally, it means you're going to catch life. I love that. Other translations say, I will make you fishers of men. I love that. He will make us what he needs us to be. He takes us and he makes us. And he takes Peter's natural skills and he repurposes them for spiritual things. And he does that with us, doesn't he? He takes your natural ability and he repurposes them for spiritual things. He takes what he's naturally gifted you at. The DNA, the gifts he has put inside you, how he knit you together and he, he uses it all. Nothing's wasted with him. He uses it all for his glory. And before Peter had a career, his career was fisherman, but now he's got a calling and a cause. Fish was a good career. But here's the thing, the fish would rot and that would be it. But when you've got a calling and a cause, you see your career in the light of eternity. And I hope you've got, if you're working, if you're somebody working, I hope you do really well in your career. But here's what I hope, that you see your career as a calling and a cause. That it's not just about rising through the corporate ladder, getting more money or getting a pay raise, but that it's actually a platform where you see it as a call and a cause. That you see your job, your family, your community, your sports club, your relationship as the place of his call and cause. Because we need a call and a cause. Every person needs a call and a cause, otherwise life becomes meaningless. This church has a call and a cause. I need a call and a cause. You know why? Because if you don't have a call and a cause, you give up and life gets hard. 
the number of days in the last 12 years that I've thought, I just want to go back to doing marketing again. And people come to me and they say, how do I know I'm called to ministry? And I say, if you're even asking the question, go and do something else. If you don't know that you're called, do something else. And that's not just about ministry. Whatever you're doing, know that God has called you there. And he has caused you to be there. And you're there for his purposes. The call enables you to pay the cost. What's he worth? Let's finish up verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. They left everything. They left everything. What did they leave? Not just the boats, they just left the fish they just caught. The biggest harvest of fish they have ever caught and they leave it behind. All to follow Jesus. If I had been Peter, I might have said, Jesus, I'll follow you in a year, but here's what we could do. I mean, look at that, Jesus. There's a lot of money to be made in fish. For the next year, why don't you follow me on my boat? And we'll make a fortune, and then I'll follow you. Sometimes our devotion to Jesus is not about what we're willing to give, it's what we're willing to give up. Sometimes it's about what we're willing to walk away from. Because here's what I've discovered. At those most pivotal points of life, at those transition moments, at those, at those moments that I talked about at the start that where everything changes, there's always an attractive alternative. They had the biggest catch of fish ever. It was worth a fortune. And they walked away from it. There's always an attractive alternative. The year before I started theological college, my boss in Unilever came to me twice and said, he didn't know I was leaving. He said twice, I'm resigning, I'm I'm retired at the end of the year, I want you to become the head of the, the department. I want you to take my job, my cushy job where I work. Literally, he worked six hours a day, drove a beautiful company car, made a lot of money. He said, I've told our superiors in England, I want you to take my job. And I had to go, <laughs> yeah. Deep down I knew that in six months I'd be haunting my notice because I was going to Dublin to be a student again. But there's always an attractive alternative. And sometimes it comes from the enemy to try and attract you and sometimes God's just testing you. Just to see how much do you want me? What are you willing to walk away from? What are you willing to say no to? Because it's not about what you say or sing but sometimes it's about what you sacrifice. And Peter showed what Jesus was worth to him by what he was willing to walk away from to follow him. And I just want to challenge you today. Is there something that God has been telling you to walk away from? A relationship, a, a habit, a whatever. I, I, just The Spirit will speak to you. And you know you need to walk away from it. And, and you sing the songs, but... There's a conviction in your heart you need to walk away from. And I want to finish with a story. In 1904, a young man called William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. He was from a very rich family, and he was an heir to the Borden family fortune. He was already very wealthy. For his high school 
graduation, his parents gave him a trip around the world. He was 16, and they sent him around the world. As he traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Burden wrote home, and he said to his parents, I want to become a missionary. One of his friends said to this, that he was throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words on the back of his Bible, no reserves. During his college years at the prestigious Ivy League, Yale University, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journey that defined what his classmates were saying on him. That entry simply said this, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden and one friend started meeting for prayer early in the morning. By the end of his first year, 150 students were meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. By the time Bill Borden was a senior at university, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in prayer groups. Borden's missionary call called him to the Muslim Kansu people of China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. Upon graduation from Yale University, he turned down many high-paying jobs. In his Bible, he wrote two more words. No retreats. William Borden went on to travel to China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he first stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he, connected, or he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William Borden's death was telegraphed back to America, the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. Many thought his life was a waste and his death had proven that he had wasted so much. But not in God's perspective, because prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written, no regrets. No regrets.